0: We continue in our study this morning of King Saul and of the Scripture which warns us to put not our trust in princes. Samuel warned the Israelites that if they continued to sin, God would destroy both the people and their king. A king or any other institution cannot shield the people from punishment for their sins against God. No one can institutionalize justice, peace, happiness. No one except our Lord Jesus. King Saul started off well. He was humble, prudent, obedient to God, and brave for his people against the enemy. But Saul quickly began to wobble when he disobeyed the commandment regarding the sacrifice. Soon after that, Saul descended into rash behavior, ill-considered actions that provoked the people to sin, and then in a paranoid manner seeking to enforce his foolish dictates, in order to vindicate himself. The Philistines were in retreat following Jonathan's exploits against the garrison. But Saul spoiled that great victory by making a foolish order that no one eat anything all day during the rush and heat and exertion of the running battle. This resulted in the people growing weak and faint. And when evening was come, they rushed to kill and eat of the prey they had seized without draining the blood, which was a gross and notorious sin against God's commandment. Saul did not acknowledge the crucial part his rash order had played in provoking the people to sin. Once again, the king's sin led the people into sin. Confirming the toxic cycle that Samuel had warned would occur, between the people and their king. The people's sin, the king's sins, and each in turn provokes the other to sin. So at the very institution the people created, that is the king, to save them from the consequences of their sin in fact makes the sin of the people worse. Saul next descends into a paranoid inquisition. He decides to seek out who has sinned and caused God to refuse to give him direction. Saul makes yet another rash oath. He swears before God to kill whoever has committed this sin rather than acknowledge the gross sin of the people in eating blood and Saul's own fault in that matter. Saul was more incensed by the fact that Jonathan had eaten a little honey. Not knowing the king's commandment, Saul swore to put Jonathan to death for it. Saul's threat to kill his son Jonathan was one step too far for the people. After all, Jonathan was the Lord's instrument to begin the great victory Israel had won that day against the Philistines. Saul soon found out that his people could swear solemn oaths to God just the same as he could. They foreswore any violence against Jonathan, and Saul had to capitulate to the people's demand. The people thus lost confidence in their new king, in his judgment, in his reasonableness. Saul went from prudence and modesty and humility to unreasonable demands for personal loyalty. He had become in just two years cranky, vacillating, and paranoid. How different is our Lord Jesus? Jesus described how He lays no unreasonable burdens upon His people, for His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He gives rest to the heavy laden who come to Him in faith. Jesus has no personality disorders or paranoia and is not stupid nor cruel to His people. He does not crush the weak and the fearful, but rather He succors them. It is interesting to note the compassion that Jesus shows for His people's physical needs. He fed the multitudes on multiple occasions, in one case explicitly stating that they were weak with hunger and He would not send them home without food lest they faint. Along the way, he wrought miracles to ensure the safety of his people from physical want. Christ was unlike Saul, who issued rash and foolish commandments that served no useful purpose, but deprived the people of sustaining food to eat and provoked them to sin. Indeed, Christ fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, who foretold that Messiah would feed his flock like a shepherd and carry the lambs in his arms and gently lead those that are with you. In the eternity that is to come, our good King Jesus does not lose His care for His loved ones. His people will never hunger nor thirst, for as the Apostle John put it, the Lamb shall feed them. Saul had to be restrained from killing his own son for a trivial and unintentional slight. But our Lord Jesus pardons His people for our offenses real offenses, horrible offenses by his dying for his people. Our king is our great God, much mightier than King Saul. Yet our king pardons our sins and he has compassion upon us because he delights in mercy. Our king subdues our iniquities and casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Praise God. Nobody ever has to stop Jesus from doing anything rash or foolish or unjust or selfish. Nobody ever needs to restrain the Savior or question His judgment or sanity or reasonableness. And around the Lord's table, we recall and celebrate how our Lord Jesus feeds His people with what we really need, His body and His blood, spiritual food indeed for our souls. We do not faint for our good King Jesus provides us that food which gives unto us eternal life. Now we come to a most tragic incident in the spiraling descent of King Saul into madness, disobedience, rebellion, and ultimately destruction. This incident is the one in which King Saul finally went completely over the edge in his disobedience to the Lord and the consequence was that he would ultimately be destroyed by God. You remember originally, the punishment was that he would lose the kingdom. would not remain in his family. But now, the punishment will be that God will utterly reject him and destroy him. And we know from the Scriptures that in the end, he... Died on the battlefield of suicide, an ignominious defeat, and total loss. But he would not just lose the kingdom now. He would be judged with loss of life. So Samuel goes to Saul and gives him the Lord's new assignment in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both men and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass." the instruction from God to Saul is to obliterate the entire nation of the Amalekites. And so Saul gathers up the people and he numbers the people and he's got like 200,000 members of his army to go against the Amalekites. Now we, we ought not to minimize the serious nature of this effort by Saul. This is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time. and It's going to be dangerous. I mean, this is a serious operation here. Remember the last time he fought, he only had, what was it, 600 people? And then that dwindled down to 300 people. Now he's got a big army. He's gone to the trouble of getting them all to travel across the country to join up, to muster the people. And so he goes to Amalek and he engages them in a great battle. And we read in verse 7, the disobedient. Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to shore, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Well, this violated the Lord's commandment right there. But notice that he doesn't destroy the kingpin of the whole sorry country. The one who had most of the blame for all the wickedness of the Amalekites, the head of state, if you will, And he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword, except the king. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. It implies that they not only kept these animals, they also kept some other good things, probably silver and gold and whatnot. So they did not obey the commandment of God to Saul. Like I said, there was a great courage, there was great danger, there was a great operation mounted to obey the Lord's word. But in the end, it failed to comply with the commandment of the Lord. You see, Saul did all the hard work and the people did all the hard work. It wouldn't have been much work to finish the job and obey the commandment of the Lord. They already had the army mustered. They were already there. They had already left their homes. They had already left their businesses. They were out in the field fighting. They had slaughtered a huge number of people, but they just couldn't go that one final step to actually obey what God had said. See, the easy part of obeying God's Word, they left off. They left the job unfinished. They did 99% of the job, but that last 1%, they utterly failed to do. And the Lord comes to Samuel and speaks to him. Verse 10, The word of the Lord came unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he is turned back from following me, hath not performed my commandments, and it grieves Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. The Lord took note of Saul's failure to obey his commandment. And no matter how much Saul thought he would get away with it, which is an amazing thing if you think about it, for our God sees and knows everything. Apparently Saul just decided not to obey literally the commandment of the Lord. So then is the great confrontation and Samuel came to Saul, And Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou, the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So now see, he lies about obeying the Lord's commandment. But the poor animals betray him, don't they? Because Samuel says, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? See, Saul should have taken all those animals off somewhere and hid them because you couldn't keep them quiet. And anyway, the Lord had already told Samuel what Saul had done. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Now notice that, first of all, Saul shifts the blame for all this off on the people. Remember, it wasn't the people that God had commanded to destroy utterly the Amalekites. It was Saul. But now Saul is saying, well, the people did that. They, they did that. Like, even though I'm the king, don't get me wrong, I am the king and I'm in charge, but I'm just not in charge of the people disobeying the Lord's commandment. They kept all those things. And then notice that Saul then goes on to assign their sin as unto the worship of God. But they did it, they did it because they want to sacrifice him to the Lord. So you see, they did evil, disobeying God, to make a sacrifice to God. But the rest we've utterly destroyed. Of course, Samuel rebukes him. When thou wast little in thine own sight, Saul, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? You remember the last time that people flew upon the spoil because Saul had starved them, not allowed them to eat, and they committed wickedness by eating the flesh with the blood. Now, you see, they've flown upon the spoil ostensibly to make sacrifices unto the Lord. It wasn't for their benefit. It was for the Lord's benefit that they violated His commandment. You would think that Saul would have learned the lesson of Achan. You remember at the fall of Jericho, he kept back some silver and some gold and some goodly garments. Why didn't Saul learn from history that when God said destroy everything, That meant everything. There was to be no exception. And when there was an exception taken by the people, judgment fell upon the people. Think of it. If Saul had somehow failed to properly communicate God's commandment to the people, if they had snagged all these sheep and oxen for whatever reason, he could have remedied the error after the battle by ordering them all to be slain as well. That is, before... Samuel showed up and before the Lord had detected, which of course he knew from beforehand, Saul's disobedience. But if Saul was like completely ignorant of this or if it all happened in the heat of battle and then you know, sorted out afterwards, they could have gone ahead and finished the job that God assigned to Saul. He could have remedied the error after the battle. But look at Saul's response to this indictment. At verse 20 of 1 Samuel 15, Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. So now you see Saul while he protests that he was perfectly obedient, nevertheless, he he lets it slip here that he had also spared Agag. He had him in custody. And again, the people. It was the people that did this. They did this. And sure, technically, they should have been utterly destroyed, but it was done to sacrifice unto the Lord. So that makes it all right. So it's the defense that's qualified by all the exceptions that he had taken to what God commanded. He blames the people again. He assigns their sin as done unto the worship of the Lord. You see, Saul thought that the purpose of saving the animals justified the disobedience of saving the animals. Of course, this is a common way. This is a common way that men think. First of all, do you really believe that's what the people had in mind? You think they were saying, oh, let's don't kill all these animals. Let's take them to sacrifice. I highly doubt it. I think that was just a post hoc justification. Or did Saul attempt to satisfy the disobedience by trying to dedicate it to the Lord's worship? You see how he seeks to justify retroactively disobeying God by dedicating the sin to the worship of God. Samuel's rebuke of this self-justification is found in verse 22. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. You see what Samuel's saying to Saul is this, that the Lord would rather you obey His commandment rather than that you disobey His commandment so that you can make sacrifices to the Lord. Sacrifices to the Lord of animals don't trump the disobedience that you engaged in in order to have the animals to sacrifice to the Lord. And why is that? Well, because the blood of beasts can never take away sin. If you have to sin in order to make a sacrifice, better not make the sacrifice and leave off the sin. You remember how there was a theme that ran through the Old Testament that it would be wrong to steal someone else's lamb in order to make a sacrifice to God with it. And you remember Nathan the prophet confronted David with that very sin and David quite justly, objected to the wrong of taking someone else's animal and sacrificing it without permission. There's this rebuke that it's always wrong to sin in order to worship God. The truth of the matter is, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Disobeying the commandment is rebellion against God. I think a lot of people miss that. Disobeying God's commandment is rebellion against God. Well, people think that disobedience is not quite as bad as rebellion, but they're really wanting the same thing. If you know the commandment and you don't do it, then you've rebelled against God's commandment. No matter the noble purpose that you assign to your disobedience. Sometimes we justify disobedience beforehand by thinking that it will accomplish a noble deed. And sometimes we justify it after the disobedience by attempting to construct a noble purpose for what we have already done. But it all comes to the same thing. That disobedience is like rebellion and it's like the sin of witchcraft. Well, you see, that in Israel's day was an atrocious crime. But Samuel is telling him that rebellion, disobedience of God's commandment, is like witchcraft. and In a certain sense, you see, These are like the equivalences of the law that to break the least of the commandments is to break the whole law. To disobey God as Saul did, you might as well have gone out, murdered, raped, and pillaged innocent people and desecrated the tabernacle and committed witchcraft and engaged in all sorts of sexual perversions and and also worshiped false gods, stubbornness, is as iniquity and idolatry, and I think the thing here is that Samuel's pointing out to Saul that you know your your excuses and your statements and your claims evidence a streak of stubbornness that you won't just break down and admit that you broke God's commandment, and there was no good reason for it, and you see that this stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And idolatry, of course, was one of the chief capital crimes against God's law. Disobeying the commandment is rebellion against God, no matter the noble purposes you assign to it. You remember Paul in Romans 3 makes the same point. He says there are people who claim that, well, if our sin vindicates God's, faithfulness and God's righteousness, then maybe we should just sin some more because He will be glorified by it. And remember what Paul's conclusion was, whose condemnation, whose damnation is just. People who think that way are justly damned by the justice of God. If you think that any wrong you do is somehow sanctified by your so-called noble purpose, then you are sadly mistaken. Assuming that Saul's purpose, as he articulates, after the fact was indeed noble, you're still wrong. It's still a sin. You're still in rebellion. You still violated God's commandment. Much more so if Saul's defenses were pretextual and disingenuous, which they probably were. Saul's defense continues on into the next verse. At verse 24, Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You see, he's doing it again. He's shifting the blame off onto his people. Now he's saying, well, I was afraid of the people, and so I uh, disobeyed. I obeyed their voice and disobeyed God's commandment. Now isn't that strange when he wasn't afraid of the people, when he issued that silly order not to eat anything. The people were afraid of him. Now all of a sudden he claims he was afraid of the people. What was there to fear? They had defeated the Amalekites. All God had commanded him to do was destroy everything. You think the people would be upset if he had put Agag to death? you think the people would have been upset if He put all those sheep and oxen and all to death? Unless they had taken them for themselves, which He claimed they had not. He claimed they had taken them for sacrifices. Do you really believe that that's what the people intended? You reject God's command. God rejects you. And so Saul finally admits Well, no, I I, I admit I sinned. I didn't keep God's commandment. But it was because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now here again, we see the tragic truth that oftentimes the institutions we create in order to uphold right and truth and justice and peace, the people end up just pandering to the desires of the people. And so the sin of the people, as we said before, It resonates with, and in sympathy, the rulers take up that sin, respond to that sin, reflect that sin, and engage themselves in sin because of the people's sin. Saul wanted the people to follow him as king. And notice how Saul confirms Samuel's warning. If you continue, that is, the people continue in sin, God will destroy both you and your king. But then Saul pleads for forgiveness, but Samuel and the Lord will not change the judgment that's been made. Verse 29, Also the strength of Israel, that is the Lord of hosts, will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. The judgment is final, it's settled, and there's nothing that Saul can say or do that will change God's decision about judging Saul for his disobedience. But note finally this, Saul's craving for the appearance of acceptance by Samuel and by God. Craving for the appearance before the people, you see. At verse 30, he says, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So you see, he wants to paper over this rupture between himself and Samuel, between himself and the Lord on account of his disobedience. He wants to paper over that by making it appear that everything's just fine and we're still on the same page and we're still all getting along together with each other. So he wants to make a public show. Now, this is not the first time that Saul has manipulated sacrifices to the Lord in order to keep the people on his side... You remember that was his excuse for having a sacrifice without Samuel being present because the people were deserting him and so he needed him some, we would put it today, he needed to go through a state-sponsored religious ritual in order to satisfy the people that the Lord was really with them. Because look at here, we're making these sacrifices as if a political sacrifice, an act of worship, somehow represents or proves that we're all right with God. And, and you know, we make the same mistake nowadays too, don't we? Why, if people just use the right words and evoke the right imagery and talk about God and talk about His protection and so forth, well, then we're good. We're good to go, aren't we? That's all we need to hear in order to believe that God is satisfied with us or will support us or uphold us or protect us. And that's not the truth at all. Because obedience is more important than sacrifice. In the end, all those religious rituals, you see, we can't control God with them. We're supposed to obey God with them, but we can't control God with them. He craved that appearance of acceptance by Samuel and by God. He was not the first nor the last political leader to exploit the worship of God and sacrifice as a political stunt. But it was all over between Saul and Samuel. Samuel went along with Saul's request. But at verse 35 we read, And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And then there was this final and dreadful change You remember God had given the Holy Ghost to Saul at the start of his rule. But now in 1 Samuel 16 at verse 14, we read this. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And now Saul turns to political schemes and violence to try to stamp out his rival the young man David, whom the Lord has anointed to take his place as king. You see, there's going to be no more pretense at worshiping of God in Saul's repertoire, his political repertoire, his attempt to maintain his position with his people. Now, he's just going to use violence and thwarted attempts at murder in order to maintain his position as king over the nation. And as we think about all this, we think, what a difference is our Lord Jesus. You know, he could never be tempted to sin by his own right to rule as king. We think of how Saul was given the right to rule as king by God, and yet he was so easily led astray by the people's desires and by his own fecklessness and his own desires and he thought that because he was the king, he had this right to behave in these matters, the right to make these decisions, the right to utilize and manipulate people and sacrifices and so forth uh, to his own ends. But the Lord Jesus, you know, he has a right to rule over all the universe. He is the King of Glory. And not only does he have the right, but he has been set up and given all authority by his Father. And yet, in his earthly ministry, he would not be tempted by the devil or by anyone else in order to satisfy his own needs or to vindicate himself as the ruler, as the king, as the Messiah. We read this morning the famous temptation passage of Luke chapter 4 you remember there were those three temptations which the devil confronted the Lord Jesus with after he had fasted for 40 days and he was hungry. Why, the devil came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Now notice that there was a taunt in that. Prove to me that you're the Son of God. Don't just talk about it. Don't just claim it. But prove it. Prove it by making the stone, turning it into bread. But notice also there's the temptation. Well, you need some food, and there isn't any food around here. But you can easily have your own food by making some. You remember later on the Lord Jesus would feed five thousand people by multiplying the little paltry sum of loaves and fishes that they had. And now here the devil's saying you can turn this stone into bread if you're the son of God. You see, there's a dual appeal there to to pride, and to his physical need for food. And so the Lord Jesus, His response was that He would not use His own power to satisfy His needs. He would rather trust in His Father to provide Him with His needs. This was a theme of His ministry, that we are to trust the Father to provide us with our food and raiment and with housing and so forth. We're not to be all concerned about how we're going to have those things. Our Father will give us good gifts. Here the Lord Jesus would not use His power to feed Himself, to provide Himself with water, with shelter with anything. He always relied upon His Father to do those things and His Father was faithful to perform His promises to His people, to His Son. It is a striking thing that the Lord Jesus was ready to use His power to help poor sinners. He was ready to use His power to feed His disciples and His followers. He had plenty of power to use, but He did not use it to save Himself or to provide for His wants. Then, of course, the second temptation is Satan offers that he would give Jesus the rule of the kingdoms of the world If only he would bow down and worship the devil. Now, of course, this was a great shortcut to Christ's reign, to worship the devil. There's all of these little stories in our mythology and in our literature about people who sold their souls to the devil, people who've made a pact with the devil. In order to gain something they didn't feel like they could gain that they desperately wanted. And so here the devil is saying, look, I'll make you king of the world if you'll just worship me. And how many people would turn that offer down? Of course, none of the Lord's people could ever think of accepting an offer like that. But how often do we sin in a lesser way in order to obtain something that we feel like we can't obtain by lawful, righteous, and just means? But the Lord Jesus would have none of that he cites the Scripture back to the devil that you could only worship the Lord thy God and Him only shalt thou serve. And then finally, of course, there's that temptation to prove He's the Messiah, the Promised One. And the devil takes as his text that verse in the Psalms where it describes how that God would give Messiah into the charge of the angels who will bear Him up lest He dash His foot against the stone to which... The devil says you believe in the promises of God, right? Yes, we all do, don't we? And you claim you're the Messiah, right? So this verse applies directly to you. Well, why don't you just take God up on that offer and throw yourself off this high point? Because you can't die. You can't be injured. You won't dash your foot against the stone. Well, why don't you just prove to me and to yourself and to God That God's promise to you is true, if you're really the Messiah, that is. And you see, this is a temptation for vindication of the Lord Jesus. People might mock and disbelieve that He's the Messiah. Well, you know, you can shut those mouths up. Even I'll stop mocking your claims if you'll just do this little test because after all, if God has made this promise, then it's predestinated, it's ordained. There's nothing you can do that will cause any damage to yourself because of this promise here. And this, of course, is a challenge to all of us. Not to presume upon God's promises and to say, well, if God's promised X, Y, and Z, then that means I can go out and do whatever I want to and X, Y, and Z will take place. And so we abuse the promises of God and the foreordination of God. It's like people who think, well, since I'm elect and God has saved me and Jesus has died for me, I can just go out and sin all I want. Because there's nothing that can take me out of the Father's hand. Nothing that can take me out of Christ's hand. That's not the attitude that we should have at all. And Jesus here rebukes that attitude. That we're not supposed to test the Lord. We're not supposed to prove His promises by behaving unlawfully, unreasonably, recklessly, foolishly on the presumption that the promises will nevertheless come to pass. Because the Lord ordains not only the end of all things, but He also ordains the means by which they are to be accomplished. And the Lord does not ever require His people to sin or violate His word or His commandment in order for His promises to come to pass. So you see that the Lord Jesus didn't like King Saul at all. He doesn't fall for these kind of temptations to vainglory and to vindication and to prove His right to rule over His kingdom. But then notice that Jesus would not allow His people to lead Him into disobedience to the Father's commandment how often Saul was led into disobedience by the people's desires. And sometimes he just made that up as an excuse after the fact, but sometimes it was really true. But in Matthew's Gospel, the 16th chapter, we read that famous incident where Peter rebukes Jesus for his discussion of the death that he must die that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that He must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took Him and began to rebuke Him, saying, Be it far from Thee, Lord, this shall never be unto Thee. But He turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind Me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto Me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of man. This idea of being an offense means that you are trying to be a stumbling block to bring harm to me by an inducement or incitement to disobey the commandments of the Lord. You remember Jesus warned that anybody who offended one of these little ones who believe on me, it'd be better for a millstone to be tied around their neck if they should try to tempt one of His faithful children Disobey him, and here the Lord Jesus is saying, You know, I know that you don't approve of me dying and rising again, and I know that it violates your scheme for what you want, which is an earthly kingdom to be installed right now where you can reign with me. That's not what I'm here to do at this time, I'm here to save my people from their sin. That requires a sacrifice. It requires an offering. It requires a satisfaction for the sin that you've committed against the holy God. While Peter and the other disciples presumably mightily sought to direct the Lord Jesus away from His Father's commandment to be God's Lamb for His people, the Lord Jesus would not take the bait. He would not succumb to this inducement or this ridicule or this action or these words by Peter to try to dissuade him. Far from being afraid of his people like Saul grew to be, the Lord Jesus rather feared his father and also delighted to do his will and also was determined to save us by his dying for us. He could not allow His people to lead Him into disobedience of the Father's will. And then, of course, in John, we have the same type of attempt by Peter to derail the crucifixion of Christ. At verse 10, after they came to arrest the Lord Jesus, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And it says in another text that Jesus touched his ear and healed it. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into its sheath, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? See, Peter didn't want Christ to drink the cup of wrath and of trouble and of tribulation and of execution that the Father had given to Christ. That it was Christ's duty to drink to the dregs. Peter didn't want that. And he actually resorted to violence to try to stop Jesus from obeying His Father's will and from dying to save His people. You know, it was foretold of Christ uh, Isaiah in chapter 42. Behold my servant, that is the Lord Jesus, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. You notice how God's soul delights in His Son Jesus even though it did not delight in the disobedient King Saul. Why? Because the Lord Jesus did never disobey the commandments of His Father. I have put My Spirit upon Him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Verse 4, He shall not fail nor be discouraged, till He have set justice in the earth, and the isles shall wait for His law. You see, it had been foretold that the Lord Jesus could not be dissuaded from obedience to the commandment of God. He would not be dissuaded from it. He would not be discouraged by the rejection of the people, by the stupidity and foolishness and temptation of His own loved disciples. He would not be turned away from it in any way or for any reason until He established this justice in the earth and all the world would await His rule, His law. This is the Lord Jesus. Unlike Saul, He could not be turned away or turned aside by disobedience in Himself or His people or by fear or by temptation of Himself by His people. And finally, Jesus never tried to shift the blame onto His people like Saul did. You remember this was the second sin reported in the Garden of Eden. That when Adam and Eve had disobeyed God's commandment and eaten the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the Lord confronted Adam with his sin, you remember what He said, the woman which thou gavest me, she has offered me this fruit and I did eat he tried to shift the blame off onto his wife rather than to shield her and offer up his own confession of his own sin and seek mercy for his wife because after all, the commandment wasn't given directly to her. It was given directly to Adam. He was supposed to guard his wife from any disobedience against God's commandment. But instead, when he's caught in his own sin, he tries to shift the blame off on his wife. But you know, Saul did that. He tried to shift the blame off on the people. But the people did this. and, But the people did that. But the people were always to blame. Even though whatever the people did could have been corrected by Saul if he had stepped in and fulfilled the commandments of God, then whatever the people had done would have been passed over. It would have been fixed, if you will. If it was true that they had done it on their own and in disobedience, nevertheless, God's commandment could have been upheld. But Saul blamed the people instead of obeying in their name and for their good. The Lord Jesus, you see, never shifts the blame off on His people. He didn't have to shift any blame on us. We already had all the blame for our crimes. We were guilty. We were guilty of our sin. But well, what does Jesus do? He shift the blame onto Himself, didn't He? Our sins were laid on Him. He took our blame with Him to the cross. He was punished in our place and for our crimes. Isaiah 53, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but He was wounded. What for our transgressions? He was bruised for our iniquities; the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. There was a great shifting of blame it wasn't by our good King Jesus unto us. It was by our good King Jesus unto Himself. And notice in verse 9, it says, He had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in His mouth. He was perfect and we were broken and sinful and rebellious. But He was the one who was punished and judged so that we might go free. Then it says this, It pleased the Lord to crush him. He hath put him to grief. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. My righteous servant, the Lord Jesus, justifies many for He shall bear their iniquities. He bear the sin of many. You see the big difference between the Lord Jesus and King Saul is that King Saul shifted the blame onto his people. The Lord Jesus shifted His people's blame onto Himself. You know, our good King Jesus is a King who makes no excuse for His people, who leaves no blame upon His people at all. You see, He never has to tell the Father, well, you know, my people, they're just really sorry people and they they disobey all the time. No, all that's covered by the blood of Jesus. And He has shifted that blame off us. And so His argument before the Father is, I have made full and complete satisfaction of any sin that my people have committed. It has been judged in my body already. And now they must be set free. They must be set free on account of the satisfaction that I made on the cross. In my obedience, the Lord Jesus can plead, I have done all that justice demands. You have done all that justice demands against me. Remember in First Peter 2, verse 24, who Himself, His own self, bore our sins in His own body on the tree. He takes away our blame. takes away our sin by shifting it onto Himself. So in the end, God is satisfied with His people and satisfied with their king. You see, it's all our king's doing that reverses that curse that Samuel placed on all the institutions of man and all the leaders and all the rulers and all the kings of man, that if the people sin, in the end they will be destroyed with their king Our Lord Jesus has unwound that, you see, because He was obedient unto death and He is perfect in all His ways. Rather than Jesus being destroyed by our sin, our King is glorified by His obedience and sacrifice and His people are sanctified and glorified by their King. Rather than we bringing destruction on our King, our King brings perfection, beauty, and glory upon His people by His perfect obedience and bloodshedding on the cross. And round the table of the Lord, we celebrate the obedience and sacrifice of Jesus. He said to us, He foretold in His ministry that it would be by His flesh and blood sacrificed and poured out that His people would be brought into everlasting and eternal salvation, and that He would raise us up at the last day, unto glory in His presence for all eternity. And that's what we celebrate around this table. If you've trusted in Jesus and laid aside all the claims to your own good works, so called, and cast all of your sins upon God's Lamb on the cross, and cried out, O oh God, judge all of my crimes in this Thy dear Son, then we can partake of this table, understanding what it means, that it doesn't save us. It just reminds us and causes us to celebrate the body and blood of Jesus that were laid down for us on the cross that we might go free. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make an atonement for our sin. O God, our Father, we rejoice that You gave us a better King than King Saul, one who was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross one who could not be tempted to self-aggrandizement or to asserting His rights through acts of wickedness, one who could not be tempted by His people, who could not be swayed by them into violating Your commandment, but went to the cross in obedience and in hope and in trust and accomplished the sacrifice that You had intended from before the foundation of the world a sacrifice in our place and for our crimes. And, O God, we thank You that Your dear Son, the Lamb, poured out His soul into death and shed His precious blood to make an atonement for us that our sins might be forgiven us, we who've trusted in Jesus. Help us not to trust in anything we've done ourselves, but help us to trust only in the obedience and bloodshedding of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the cup that He left us, the picture, that sacrifice that He made, that we might know that He went all the way to the end for His people's salvation. He didn't turn back or withhold Himself from shame and spitting. Thank you for the zeal of the Lord Jesus in accomplishing our redemption. Thank you that He could never be tempted to deviate from what he had been commanded to perform on our behalf and for our rescue. Thank you for the cup that he left us. May we realize that our whole life and joy and future rest in that actual physical blood that he shed and that the cup represents for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, a shed for many for the remission of sin. The Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 79 in the black book. Jesus, thy head, once crowned with thorns, is crowned with glory now. Heaven's royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. Number 79.